This is the Mooks and the Gripes podcast. Hello, everybody. This is Trevor, and with celebration in his heart, Paul. Paul, how are you doing? I am feeling very celebratory. I'm right in the heart of the holidays. It's that time of year that we always say how much we love, and so yeah, I'm feeling it. How, uh, sh- should I have said drunkenly, Paul? I mean, is it, uh, is it are you feeling that celebratory? Or I don't know if I'm feeling quite that celebratory yet, especially since we usually record in the mornings. You know, it's probably best if I don't get into any of that yet. But. <laughs> well, that's that's good to hear. You know, we'll we'll be able to hear your we'll be able to understand your choices today. Now. Yeah, exactly. Maybe if we ever do uh, mooks and gripes after dark or something, then that'll be it. <laughs> Well, I'm a teetotaler, so I'll be the responsible party. I'll make sure to go. escort you through the through the whole thing. So uh, that's right. You can drive me home, and you can debauch on you know potato chips. Maybe that's right. That's right. I'll I'll be slovenly. <laughs> <laughs> oh well, everybody, we are back. Probably don't need much of an introduction to this show because it's a part two. But it is a it is my favorite part two. It's our top five books that we read in 2022. Uh, in case you missed it, we released part one, which was our 10 through 6, a couple of weeks ago. And we are back now to share our top five. We got a little tiny, tiny, tiny bit of spoiler, because one of my top six sounds like it might be on Paul's top five. But we'll, we'll see. We'll see if we'll that's see. if I interpreted that correctly. <laughs> yeah. And I wonder if we'll have any other uh, potential matches in our top five. I don't know. I don't know. I'm I'm not sure. I didn't think we would have any, so this uh, you know I was surprised. Yeah. But <laughs> but why don't we start just like we did last time? Uh, we did ask a, a few folks if they would like to send in their picks to us, and many people recorded just like in our ten through six a little segment where they told us about their favorite book of that that they read in 2022. But there were a couple who sent us an email, and I want to make sure that we get theirs as well. And one of them is a fantastic librarian Twitter friend, uh, Gavin Wolcher. And the, the book that he highlights here is called Bottomless Belly Button by Dash Shaw. I remember him tweeting us when he read this and saying, recommended guys, <laughs> or yeah. something along those lines. Yep. But this uh, this is enticing. Other than you know, this might this might be right up your alley, Paul. Very dark, disturbing, yeah, bleak. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> a behemoth at seven hundred twenty pages. This graphic novel chronicles the dysfunction of the Looney family, addressing issues of divorce, uncertainty, place, personal and family history, and relationships. Shaw shows the complexities of everyday existence through deceivingly simple art and poignant messaging. There really is not a lot to cheer for in this book. There you go, Paul. It won't make you feel good, Paul. (laughs) It doesn't have a happy ending. Well, now now you got to go out and get it. (laughs) I like these kinds of things too. And it will most likely reflect some aspects of your own family that will make you feel uncomfortable, but it is an important read. Sounds so, really good. Thanks for sending that in to us, Gavin. And then someone who has been doing work that we all appreciate very much um, for weeks was working out how to get this thing recorded. Uh, we were trying to get it all ironed out, but, you know, he's a bookseller. And as he's posted on Instagram, 
he's finishing up books, you know, that he's writing himself. But mm. we got Mark Haber, um, who guested with us on our episode about New Directions earlier in the year. And he still sent me what his favorite read of the year was. And it, he says he's cheating just a little bit because part three was released this year. But it's uh, John Fossey's Septology. Uh, and that's translated by Damien Cyril's. Says it, he says, it's not a very original choice, but just incredible and something I'll go back to again and again. So very, very happy to... I, I finally just told him, you know, hey, you are doing all of our work for us, you know, (laughs) as a bookseller and as one of our favorite authors. So no need to put a lot of pressure on you, but I was glad he still sent me what is, what his favorite read of the year was because I wanted to know. So I am too. (laughs) Yeah. And actually that, uh, the first couple of books of that series were on my maybe pile, maybe my honorable Mm. mention pile for my top 10 of the year. So I'm looking forward to reading the rest of that series and hearing people like him and there's um, Merv Emery, I believe is how you say her name. She mm-hmm. has been writing some things about that for the New York Times and elsewhere that make me even more excited to read the rest of them too. She's written very well on that. So, Well, in Transit Great. Books, for those who are, are interested, they've released these volumes individually, but they also just a month or two ago released a hardback that's all of them compiled together. Uh, I know, it's so tempting. I have all the Fitzcarraldo <laughs> editions already and I'm like... Hmm. <laughs> I've read two of the seven or whatever. Surely that justifies buying two entire sets of it, right? Right, exactly. He, he, it's And it's Mark's favorite read of the year. So <laughs> I know, yeah. He's another one like John Self who has done a lot of good damage to my bookshelves already. There you are. The, the good kind, the constructive the, deconstruction. <laughs> that's right. Destruction. <laughs> All right, well, we will come back to some more listener recordings here in just a few minutes after our numbers four and five. So, Paul, let me know what your number five book of the year is. All right. My number five book of the year is The Trouble with Happiness by Toba mm. Dillison, translated from the Danish by Michael uh, Fadia Goldman. I hopefully pronounced that correctly. So I know we've brought her and this book up already several times. You know, I've talked a lot about her Copenhagen trilogy, which was a series of memoirs that received a lot of acclaim and attention after they were republished. I guess it was last year. Um and honestly, that very easily could have been on my list last year, you know, because mm-hmm. those books were so amazing. Um, but having this collection on the list for the year isn't any kind of lifetime achievement award or, you know, one of those things where I'm like <laughs> putting it on there, you know, for her body of work. These stand up on their own. They are fully deserving of being on on my list. So, you know, they do carry through with a lot of the same themes that were in the Copenhagen trilogy, kind of following up on maybe Gavin's. Uh, (laughs) recommendation there you know there's a lot of loneliness and disappointment and um, the compromises that people are forced to make as they go through life I saw someone say it's as if Dillison were probing a series of aching tooth cavities so hey if that doesn't sell you I don't know what no but um, (laughs) there's one line in particular in one of the stories that stands out is kind of a good summary and it says the most important thing is probably always precisely the thing you can't have that's where all the happiness is And I thought that was a pretty good summary. So I know I do tend to read a lot of passages from these books, but I I personally feel like it's a good way to to kind of sell them and give you a taste. So I'll just read a little bit from the opening um, story, which is called The Umbrella. And it really does set the stage for a lot of the other themes in the book. So it says, Helga had always unreasonably expected more from life than it could deliver. People like her live among us, 
not differing conspicuously from those who instinctively settle their affairs and figure out precisely how, given their looks, their abilities, and their environment, they can do what they need to do in the world. And then it skips forward a little bit. Um, When her mother left, always just before her husband was expected home, and Helga waved to her familiar, substantial figure for as long as she could see it, then she sat back down at the window without turning on the light. A sadness grew within her and around her. She thought, if only Egon would come home. But when he did come and filled the small room with his noisy company, every enchantment was shattered. Could it be that it wasn't him she was longing for? She walked around quietly, carrying out her housewifely duties, picked at her food like a bird and said yes and no when her husband's remarks required an answer. Once he regarded her closely. You should have a kid, he said. I damn well don't understand why it's not happening. Then she blushed, partly at her deficiency in that department, but more because she didn't actually mind not having a child. Her togetherness with her mother allowed the child, Helga, to live on within her, so it was as if there wasn't room for another one. Sometimes she lied to Egon when he asked if her mother had been over, because for some reason he didn't like her mother to visit so often when he wasn't home. So, you know, I think between those two passages, it just gives you a really nice view into these people who are, you know, they're doing their best, but they're struggling with various things. And in this case, you know, she has some other issues, but also her, her marriage is not especially happy and she's lonely. And so as the story moves along, you find out that one of the things that she has really set her heart on is this idea of purchasing a really nice, colorful umbrella. And you find out there's some connections there to some childhood memories and there's some deeper stuff going on, why that would be so important to her. Um, but you know, she thinks that maybe it will kind of break up some of the loneliness and melancholy, um, that she's feeling in her life. And so, you know, I was thinking about reading another, another passage, but I don't want to, you know, go too far into that, but I will just say that there's some really lovely passages about why the umbrella is so important to her and, and what it means to her. Um, it doesn't necessarily have a happy end spoiler alert. So, um, <laughs> you know, these aren't happy stories clearly, but if you read a little bit about her life, you know, she did not have a very happy life. She suffered with substance abuse and other issues. And so it's very reflective of her reality. And as we always say, you know, I think that there's some importance to kind of looking into these parts of life that may be easier or or nicer to kind of skip over. Um, And even though they are dark, I found something from Dwight Garner in the New York Times that I really liked. It says, it's easy to make these stories sound even bleaker than they are. Yet, as Martin Amos said, achieved art is quite incapable of lowering the spirits. And I really liked that perspective. I think it really sums up kind of why I'm drawn to a lot of these darker stories, or at least why I can still manage to, you know, you joke about how I'm a pretty happy person, but I like to go into these books. But I do think when it comes to art and looking at some of these extremely tough topics, there's something so impactful about the way it can be done and kind of even transcendent about recognizing the human condition and all of that. So that's my number five pick. I know that um, you and I believe it was Lori Feathers had mentioned that she really liked these stories too. So I know that these have been making their way around kind of the book universe. Um, I, I believe you really like these. This yeah, well. no, I loved I loved this collection. And it was the first thing that I've read by Tova Ditlitsen. Mm-hmm. You know, I remember you talking about the Copenhagen trilogy and many others as well. And I still haven't, I still haven't read that. I yeah. don't know why I have it. But um I started with this collection and I started with the umbrella Mm. and man, you know, those first, even, you know, you read from like the first paragraph or so Mm -hmm. I was just immediately, this is someone 
who knows what she's doing yeah. and has something to say. And I thought it was fantastic. I loved the whole collection. And you're right. I, in fact, I was sitting here kind of thinking about it. Isn't it interesting that something bleak and dark can still be um, invigorating to the spirit in a way, you know, mm-hmm. that that isn't the same as happiness or joy, but is still sublime and impressive. And I wouldn't say uplifting, but you said the right word, I think, transcendent. And it's it's this is a, a perfect example of, of that kind of collection that's so sad. And especially when you realize she's not just writing. I mean, these the, the umbrella is a little bit fantastical in a way. You know, it's mm-hmm. very strange. But she's still writing about very real things to her even. And so it, it, I don't, it can feel a little strange to think, oh, that's so transcendent and beautiful. You had such a, a rough life. I'm glad I'm getting to read about it. it makes me feel right. good. And right. I know that's that's not quite the way that it is, but at the same time, that that sense of transcendence, like you said, is mm. is is there. And um, yeah, a fantastic collection. Uh, definitely a contender for to be on my list. Yeah. I'm glad you. I'm glad you brought it up. <laughs> yeah, I am too. I wondered if that one could be a shared one. So it, yeah. it certainly could have been. Probably should have been, you know, if I'm if I'm being honest. Oh, but, there's so many great books out there, you know. I'm glad we we're covering some different ground. <laughs> All right. Well, for me, my number five book, Paul. This this might surprise you because it surprises me. Not that it's on my list, but that I got through this thing in time. But I spent uh, about you know uh, the last few weeks after our settling in for a long winter's read. Mm-hmm. In this kind of place, no one understands the heart, least of all the overhanging mountains enshrouded with mists or dancing storms, which rule godlike over the narrow shores of this bleak, sea-green fjord. Sullen sea breezes blow into the rickety huts in the middle of the night without a care as to whether sensitive breasts might be sleeping there. Who doesn't know the strange feeling of waking in a winter storm to cold water dripping from the sloping ceiling onto one's naked breast, then drop after drop, and it's impossible to fall asleep again? Or, you know, it's not always winter at this fjord. Uh, You can get into, into spring. Looking closer, however, this could hardly be called a day, and even less spring, and if any sun had risen to begin with, it hadn't been assigned any particular task in this village, and the heavenly flowers that smelled so sweet in people's souls were at least as inconsequential a benefit as the dove playing the harp strings. The mountains were engulfed in fog, and a bleak, cold drizzle filled the air. (laughs) Mm. But it isn't all uh, sadness. There are sometimes Sunny days in the spring, and I love this part. The sunny days of spring are like will-o'-the-wisp, which tricks people. Innumerable are the stormy days and all the desperate, sleepless nights that the human heart can forget on one sunny day in springtime. Anyway, Paul, I I love the book Salka Valka (laughs) by Haldor Laxness and translated by Philip Rufton. This tale about a fjord in Iceland. Um... After our winter read episode, I went and started it. It's, you know, over 600 pages long yeah. and just fell right through it all. It, it is it is fantastic, better than I was even expecting. It's divided into two parts, uh, two books, I guess. I don't know exactly what they're called. And then each of those is divided essentially in half 
into separate parts as well. They each have their own little title. And uh, so every 150 pages or thereabouts, you're kind of through a new section in the book. So it just felt more bite-sized for some mm-hmm. reason, you know. It, mm-hmm. it was interesting to to see the book in, in that form and then make it through it in that way. But the first half or so deals with Salka Valka. She is 11 when she and her mom take a boat downstream. They're trying to reach, and I have I don't I should have looked up how to say the city in Iceland, uh, Reykjavik or something like that. I apologize. I should have done that before we started. Anyway, they're they're working their way down shore to get to there, but they can't make it. They have no money. And so they disembark at this little fishing village that basically everybody uh, everybody lives off of the fishing industry here. And one man in particular runs the whole industry and he owns the store. And so people work for him and get credit at the store, you know, things mm-hmm. like that. And it's just this old kind of village, this very small village. And here show up this uh, single mom and her little daughter, Salka Valka. And the first half deals a lot with Salka Valka's childhood, those first few years with her mom in this village and the difficulties and the, the culture and the, the religion and the men. Mm. <laughs> and then the last half deals more with Salka Valka, you know, years later when she's an adult. And it's a little bit more heavily political trying to figure out how do we how do we help this city survive you know is is communism the way is you know some other method uh, going to help us get get through all of this and there's more dealings with people from out of town and the like but ultimately it all comes down to Salka Valka this very strong girl and then woman who is very unique and there's a passage that I thought I would read too um, about her that's from the second part of the book when she's an adult, but you can still feel she's just, she deals with so much and people recognize her strength, but uh, Laxness also shows her vulnerability and some of her own sensitivity to, to life. She felt that those who wrote books were always thinking about themselves, not about her. It almost never happened that they took part in the pulsing in her veins She felt as if they all considered themselves superior to her and even wrote their most informative books for the purpose of convincing her of that. Thus, she actually knew of nothing that she felt could cut through her solitude. When she touched herself between the sheets in the evenings, she was often seized with hatred and fell asleep feeling sorrowful. And I, you know, hesitate to to say too much on, you know, hey, this this is a a fantastic book about a a woman's experience because I am, you know, uh, a man and uh, so is the author here. (laughs) Right. But there is a review in the Washington Post by Jane Smiley, who incidentally has her own new book coming out this month. I do have a copy of that. Need to get to it. (laughs) Um, But she says, and I'll rely on her then, uh, Laxness characters are rough and honest Salka Valka is one of the most empathetic portraits of a girl and a woman that I've read by a male author. So there wow. you go. We'll, yeah. we'll rely on Jane Smiley to, to talk about that aspect of it. But regardless, it is just a rich book about a place. You know, I, I purposefully wanted to talk about the location at the beginning mm-hmm. and, 
that sense of just living, you know, in this relatively brutal area of the world where if it storms too much, your fish industry is going down. And so the weather and it's, uh, you know, uh, sudden changes can, can be much more devastating than, than me who looks outside and goes, Oh no, is it going to be a long commute to work today? <laughs> right. Exactly. So, uh, well, but yes, I, I know you joked at the end of that episode. Oh, maybe Salkavalka, you know, if you can only get through it. And I didn't think that I would. Um, but it was that kind of book that I just fell, fell through basically. Wow. That's impressive. Well, I'm so happy you did. That's, that's exciting. Does that type of beautiful like landscape description play a part throughout the book or is that kind of like setting the stage for each of the sections or something like what does it carry through? Would you say it does carry through, but a lot of times it's the foundation at the beginning yeah. of the chapter to help you understand where we're at in mm-hmm. time, because it does move relatively quickly through time. It's not like one chapter and then the next one begins the the day after or anything like that. It's usually a month or two has passed or a year and then, you know, it, it, it's this time of year, everybody. There's chapters at, at the holiday season that we're in. There's chapters at, at Easter. There, you know, are, are mm-hmm. things like that throughout. So it doesn't, it's not like he stops very often, at least that I can remember in the middle of chapters to really dig into the the nature. Yeah. Um, but it's a great taste at the beginning of, of not every chapter, but many of the chapters as to uh, the sense of place again. Yeah, oh, that's beautiful. Well, that makes me pretty excited. I, I'm so happy that you ended up liking it because it, it came with such high expectations, mm-hmm. you know, and we've talked about it a lot. And like I said, the current, the, the continual theme of me running out and grabbing it. But that <laughs> does sound like that would be a wonderful book to read, you know, either here as we close out the year or heading into the early part of 2023, you know, a nice winter book. I I do recommend it as such. I re- read the the opening part mm-hmm. in that winter reads episode and it's it's winter time in this uh, village in this fjord and the the sailors are all kind of talking about that and yeah it doesn't stay there it's not a winter book throughout but it's a wintry it's iceland you know yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's always Absolutely. winter there they're reindeer <laughs> you know that are your neighbors and such so <laughs> <laughs> exactly awesome well that's a great choice i love it all right you well, ready? what yeah what's your number four so my number four choice is Elena Knows by Claudia Pinheiro, translated from the Spanish by Francis Riddle and published by Charco Press. So this book, you know, you may have seen it online. It's been getting quite a bit of buzz. Um, back in April, it was shortlisted for the International Booker Prize. So I think even before that, I was hearing a lot about it. But after that is when it really seemed to take off a little bit. So Pinheiro, she's a well-known crime writer in Argentina, and apparently she's often compared to to Alfred Hitchcock. So that should appeal to some people out there. Um, in many ways, this book, you know, could be considered a mystery or a crime novel, but it's also a, ho- a whole lot more than that. There's a lot going on. Um, the protagonist named Elena is a 63 old, 63 year old woman who's suffering from Parkinson's disease. And so she, I guess if there's a detective character in this book, she would definitely be that um, because her daughter is found hanging and dead in the Belfry of a church that she attends. Her name is Rita and her death is ruled a suicide, but Elena, you know, kind of refuses to accept that verdict. And that's kind of the driving mystery behind the book is her unwillingness to believe that that's what's actually happened. 
And so she basically spends the rest of the book, you know, on this quest to kind of find out what the truth really is. Um, Elena, she's quite a character. She's, you know, it's nice because she's an older character. And we've talked about that in some of our episodes, like how that's not often represented in fiction. But in addition to that, she's largely ignored or underestimated by those around her, both due to her age and to the Parkinson's disease that she suffers with. So she can often kind of pass right through a crowd and not really get noticed. But man, we get exposed to her inner, you know, thoughts and everything. And she is a force to be reckoned with for sure. Um, Her illness has a huge impact both on the book itself, but also on the way that the book is actually structured. It's divided up into three sections and they're called morning, midday, and afternoon. And the reason they're divided up that way is because this does take place in one day, but even more importantly, um, Elena's medication schedule is reflected in those three times. So basically she must stick really closely to this schedule of medications in order to maintain even any ability to kind of be able to move through the day and maintain control of her body as she struggles with Parkinson's. So she often refers to the disease as an adversary or an intruder inside of her body. So, you know, Pinheiro is excellent at the mystery and crime aspects of this whole thing as this quote unquote case kind of unfolds, but she's also really, really good at conveying what it's like to live in this damaged body with Elena. So I'll start reading, you know, just from the very beginning, the the book starts like this. It says morning, second pill. The trick is to lift up the right foot just a few centimeters off the floor, move it forward through the air just enough to get past the left foot. And when it gets as far as it can go, lower it. That's all it is, Elena thinks. But she thinks this, and even though her brain orders the movement, her right foot doesn't move. It does not lift up. It does not move forward through the air. It does not lower back down. It's so simple, but it doesn't do it. So Elena sits and waits. In her kitchen. She has to take the train into the city at 10 o'clock. The one after that, the 11 o'clock, won't do, because she took the pill at 9. So she thinks, and she knows, that she has to take the 10 o'clock train, right after the medication has managed to persuade her body to follow her brain's orders. Soon. The 11 o'clock train won't do, because by then the medicine's effect will have diminished and almost disappeared, and she'll be back to where she is now, but without any hope that the levodopa will take effect. Levodopa is the name for the chemical that will begin circulating in her body once the pill has dissolved. She's known that name for a while now. Levodopa. The doctor said it, and she wrote it down for herself on a piece of paper, because she knew she wasn't going to understand the doctor's handwriting. She knows that the levodopa is moving through her body. All she can do now is wait and count the streets. So that gives you an idea. I mean, it's just amazing. Mm. It's claustrophobic in a way, because you can feel yourself trapped in her body, but also just things that we take for granted on a daily basis, where we would just get up and go do something for her just to go across town. She basically has to plan it out around pills bus schedules, you know, how far she can walk in a given amount of time and all these things. So the reason that she's trying to figure all that out is she's setting off on this quest across the city of Buenos Aires to meet someone who she thinks might be able to help get to the bottom of things with this whole mystery surrounding her daughter's death. And so that takes up the whole book really, except for it's balanced by some flashbacks and other insights into the backstory of her relationship with her daughter, which again, there's a lot there, some some damage and some some problems. Um, I've read some comparisons, very loose comparisons to Homer and to Joyce, because you know I think the Joyce probably comes because it's set in one city during the course of a single day, and then Ulysses because this small, seemingly small quest that she sets off on 
has a lot in common with these epic quests just because of all the things that we just talked about. So um, I won't read a whole lot more, but again, just the interiority. And this book is so good. And I just wanted to give one more quick taste. Um, it says she's nervous, which isn't good because when she gets nervous, the medication takes longer to work, but she can't help it. Today's the day she's going to play her last card to try to find out who killed her daughter, to talk to the only person in the world who she thinks she can convince to help her. So then she's talking about once she reaches this person, it's possible she won't even recognize her because of her disease or how long it's been over the years. And it says, and even if she remembers her, she won't recognize her trapped, hunched inside a deteriorating body that doesn't match her age. It will be Elena's job to explain who she is and why she's there when she confronts Isabel. She's going to tell her about Rita and about her death, or rather, she'll tell her the little she understands from everything they've told her. So you can see there's this mother's, it's a desperation and unwillingness to accept what everybody keeps telling her. And then that's complicated and exacerbated by the fact that she's, you know, a senior who's dealing with some of these other problems. So it's a really, really, hmm. uh, it's touching in a way, but she's also, <laughs> she she's kind of like that character that we talked about in Olga Tkarczyk's uh, book, um, Drive the Pile Over the Bones of the Dead, where... Mm-hmm you find yourself rooting for her and empathizing with her, despite the fact that in many ways, she's quite a handful of a person, you know? So <laughs> it's a, it's a great character. So it's such a good book. It ticks several boxes we've talked about, you know, focusing on older characters and some of those people that society kind of overlooks and ignores. But, you know, I know this one will probably end up on a lot of people's lists for the year based on, you know, talking to some, some other people online, because it's just such a good book. So highly, highly recommended. Well, I am very glad that that's on your list because of something that happened to me yesterday. Okay. So, you know, on Fridays, I do a post on Instagram that's, hey, everybody, what are you reading this weekend? Mm -hmm. And people will will chime in and then I'll post the covers and all of that. Well, somebody is reading uh, this book, Elena Knows. And I'm pretty fast. I mean, I can get on there, see what people have written, and I know where to go to find them. I usually go to Amazon and make sure I get a good uh, high quality image of the book's cover. Well, yesterday, my fingers were moving so fast, I hit the buy now with one click <laughs> on Elena Knows. And I've been wanting to read it for a long time. It's been in, you know, it's been in my mind, but that was not deliberate. Wow. It was fate. So was fate. <laughs> exactly. You didn't know I'm actually a Jedi and I used the force. You did that. Yeah, exactly. No, that's, that's hilarious. But that's, of all the books to do a one click accidental buy on. <laughs> That one's very high on the list. You'll be very happy, I think. I'm excited. Well, so I read it last night, and it's my... No, just kidding. (laughs) (laughs) Nope, I haven't read it yet, but very excited now, even more so than I was before. You know, I knew that it sounded intriguing, but you've you've talked it up in a way that makes me just really anxious. Give me a good foundation for it. Yeah, well, good. Well, my number four book is a book that I, I think you have. I don't know if you've read it yet, but I know that you're a fan of the author. It is Te Amo by Hanna Oshtevik, uh, translated uh, by Martin Aitken. Have you read this one yet, Paul? I have, and it very oh. easily could have been on my list, and I was actually really, really hoping that it would be on yours. So I'm <laughs> glad. You know, reading through this, again, sometimes at the first page, you realize, oh boy, here mm-hmm. we go. And I read that first page a while back, so I won't read it again, but it's her talking about what we say when we're saying I love you kind of thing. Um, especially since this is a part where she's the narrator is talking about her husband who 
is dying of cancer uh, as she's trying to write and trying to write a book, not necessarily this book. But man, this book goes goes deep and introspective. And there's a part just a few pages later before they really understand what's going on where she says, I was jealous of your pain, which mounted over the summer. You'd wander about at night in our dark, roomy apartment, moaning and whimpering. It never occurred to me that you could be seriously ill. I reasoned the pain was from keeping something inside, that you weren't happy with me anymore and didn't want the life we were living, only you couldn't bring yourself to acknowledge it and tell me. That was what I thought. Sometimes I wondered if there was someone else and would convince myself of it, that some other woman had become the object of your desires, for you were giving so little away. The signals you sent me were so unclear. Man, just that tendency we have to, you know, we've been vulnerable with this person and these little things can can become about us. Mm-hmm. Even though it is about her too, she's losing her spouse, her partner, and yet to almost be mistrusting of what they're going through that's causing them to kind of shut down and shut off. I just, man, gives me the, the chills in, yeah. in a way that's so sad. Um, but I love parts too, where she talks about their relationship and this is when they're just, it's still very early in the, in the book, like page 10, they're going to figure out what is wrong. And it says it was where they were going to find out what was wrong with you, you with whom I belong, you who make the night and the darkness our own in our big bed, a place where I can touch you, sense that you exist and feel secure, you who are home to me, my sky. Just, and again, you know, similar to Toba Ditlevson, this is maybe autobiographical 100%. You know, as the narrator goes on, she talks about having, you know, gone on tour for her novel, Love, and, you know, of course, Hanna Orstevik is that author. (laughs) Yeah. And she really did lose her husband to cancer a few years ago. Mm-hmm. And so as the book goes on, she starts to say, so now I've decided to write this book about us and all of that. And it is very, you know, open and honest and reflective and exploratory, very vulnerable uh, because she's writing about her own insecurities as she's going through this. And it's not that same. I just need to write a memorial about my my spouse or something like that. It's, it's also about, man, look at all these, these things I feel, look at these temptations that I've had, you know, for not, not necessarily for an affair, but for companionship, you know, when she does leave again to go out on tour and such and her hesitancy to even write it down. You know, we, we only know pages and pages and pages later that this episode happened to her because she can't bring herself to write down that she enjoyed talking with a man while she was on tour. Mm. I just, I loved everything about this book. Um, You know, Archipelago just knocks it out of the park so much with the books that they, they publish the, the authors that they, they highlight as so many other of our favorite publishers do, of course, but this is my third book from them on this list this year. (laughs) So, and, and this was a very tiny one, you know, uh, Salka Falk is, uh, you know, 620, 630 pages. And Tiamo, in its final form, 
is right around 100, 120 pages. So you can read it very quickly. Um, but just such a special book and painful, yeah. painful. Uh, it is. It reminds me of the discussion we had when we read our books about getting older and how in our society, there's so much focus on youth and fitness and healthiness mm-hmm. and diet and all that stuff. And so for me, there's something, I don't know if cathartic, cathartic is the right word, but when you acknowledge that these things can and do happen every day and you kind of get a look into what it's like, even though it's painful, there's also something that's kind of like ripping off a bandaid or, you know, something like that, where I really do appreciate the insights and just the Mm -hmm. spending some time in that. And obviously, you know, it's easier when you can close the book and and make it go away. But at the same time, you know that for a lot of people that's not possible. And Mm -hmm. I don't know, it's just when you, when you read about age and death and some of these harder things, like we keep talking about, I mean, there is something that is just, I don't know. It's one of the things that art can do that's so important, I think. And so, yeah, I'm so glad you, you chose that book. It's really amazing. I love, she is such a good author. Like I think every book that she's written has just left me completely mm-hmm. you know stunned so i'm excited for more i mean we don't have all of them in english yet and mm-hmm. i hope they're i hope they're on their way uh yeah. because yeah she's every book that i've read by her too the three right the pastor love mm-hmm. and tiamo i don't i don't know if there's any others and i don't I think don't those so. are the only, only three that i've done yeah, yeah me too so yeah more and uh <laughs> and you know we'll get more gut punches but it does help like you're saying you know there's something about recognizing some things are very superficial that we can spend a lot of time worrying about and dealing with and this can help kind of break away some of that to get to the heart of some things and it can feel you know a great sense of uh, of gratitude mm. at the end of these things for for relationships and for what you have and like you say, it's really nice when you can put it aside and, and, you know, your, your family and your, your life is, is still in one piece to, to, to all of that. But, mm-hmm. but boy, it is, it is still important to, to recognize and, um, but yeah, just a tremendous, tremendous book. I, it, it could be, it could be all of these today could be higher on my list. So I know exactly. <laughs> But let's take a little bit of a break from our uh, favorite books to listen to some of our friends who have graciously and hopefully without too much trouble (laughs) sent in their recordings to us. So first, we will hear from our friend Alina Stefanescu. I'm Alina Stefanescu, and Antonio Di Benedetto's novel, The Silentiary, has captivated me. The book itself is a sort of labyrinth of introspection where the protagonist, this man who wants to write a book, is looking for something to set it off, for something to begin it. And he distinguishes at an interesting part between chosen music and imposed music, or the noise that we're forced to be a part of versus the noise that we choose to hear. This is interesting because as a writer, I think we are constantly trying to decide which noise to hear or expecting to hear a particular noise or waiting even for a prompt that allows us to begin the book or in the case of this novel, The Killing. Part of uh, what has been called the Trilogy of Expectation, Di Benedetto's novel was translated 
by Esther Allen. And the translation is incredibly close, closely hewn, and um, very articulate in its silences. The afterword by Allen also references music, which I think really matters. And she sort of fleshes out how Eric Satie and um, John Cage, for example, are invoked in this movement towards electronic noise or static noise and various forms of silence. So, Paul, I have read Alina's Choice, The Silentiary. I love Antonio de Benedetto's books and can't wait until we get part three of this little, you know, I'll put it in quotes, trilogy mm-hmm. <laughs> that he wrote. I know it's on its way someday down the line. Uh, I know you, you've read and loved Zama, but I don't think you've read The Silentiary yet. Is that right? That's exactly right. Yeah. Although, again, I right. keep saying I don't know why I haven't, but yeah, I, yeah. yeah it sounds great. It's tough to figure out which one of these to jump into (laughs) after an episode like this. (laughs) All of them. All of them. Well, and the next one I also haven't read, but this is from my brother, Brian, who uh, joined us. You know, I used to be podcast partners with him Mm -hmm. and I'm actually going up to his house for a Christmas party today. So I'll, I'll get to see him. But his choice is one that I haven't read. I mean, just to see if you have, but we'll listen to him. Well, Merry Christmas. Feliz Navidad, etc. Trevor and Paul. Hope all is going well for you guys. Trevor asked if I would just give a quick comment on a favorite read during the year. And, you know, I looked back over the books that I've read this past year, and I was a little bit disappointed. You know, I, I enjoyed them all, but there weren't a lot that I just, oh, man, that was awesome. I absolutely loved it. So I'm going to comment on one book that I just recently finished, and uh, it's it's actually kind of one that I have wanted to read for a long, long, long time and have never picked up and finally decided to give it a go. It was Christine by Stephen King. I read it for two reasons. Uh, he wrote it earlier on in his career, and I tend to like older Stephen King better than newer Stephen King, and I liked it because it was nostalgic for me. Uh, and also, it's my wife's name, Christine, uh, and I did enjoy it. Uh, it's not like it's a literary masterpiece or anything like that, but I, I really enjoyed getting back and kind of revisiting my youth a bit, if you will. Hope you guys have a great one. See you later. Well, thank you, Brian. I look forward to seeing you here in a few hours. <laughs> um, Paul, have you read Christine? That's a Stephen King book I never have read. Ha- I was going to say a, a car just never made me feel like I needed to get haunted by it or, or that I ever would. It just doesn't sound like a scary story to me. <laughs> no, I think that's exactly the same for me. I, I think I've read probably, well, the way he puts out books, I probably can't say this anymore. For a time there, I had read most of the books he'd put out. Um, Mm -hmm. but not that one. And I think it's for exactly the reason that you said like Cujo, you know, big St. Bernard, I can get on board with that. That sounds scary, (laughs) you know, or, you know, somebody who's stranded with a crazy fan out in the middle of nowhere. Okay. But when it comes to a haunted car, I know exactly. It's just bound (laughs) to happen. But yeah, the the haunted car thing, I'm sure that he probably pulls it off. And after hearing Brian talk about it, it does sound pretty appealing. So maybe that's one where I'll, you know, do like an audio. I think that could be maybe a good audio listen. Finally start filling in the backlist for you. Exactly. (laughs) All right. Well, our next guest is Stu. Stu's another one of our very old friends from online. Um, Mm -hmm. Early, early days of Twitter and all of that. I just uh, have always really enjoyed Stu from Winston's dad. Uh, Winston being his his old 
Zolg Dog. And mm-hmm. uh, Stu, thanks for thanks for sending us your pick. Here we go. Hi, Trevor and Paul. This is Stu from Winston's Dad. My two books of the year are, firstly, The Man Booker International winning Tomb of Sand by Katerina Shree. It follows an elderly lady who takes to her bed after her husband's death and slowly gets back into the world. It features a prominent trans character, some wonderful wordplay, and hopefully opens the door to more wonderful literature and translation from India. My second book is from a relatively new press in the UK, Three Times Rebel. Nuria Bencio's Deadlands is a falconesque story of, told by 13 characters following their death in a small remote Catalan village of John, who's been shot in the back. We see the story from various angles of the family and people after his death. I love books set in villages, so this was one of my favourites of the year, if not my favourite. As the press is hoping to champion working class female voices from minority communities, it suits my blog down to a T. Thank you very much, Trevor and Paul, for giving me the chance to talk. Well, Paul, those are two books I have not read yet, though, of course, I've heard a lot about Tomb of Sand, want to get to it, uh, yeah. but the other, not one that I know much about, so thanks, Stu. Yeah, me either. Actually, I picked up Tomb of Sand recently. My understanding was that it wasn't yet available in the United States and was going to be released, but I was going through the Boulder Bookstore probably a month ago. And what do I spy on the shelf for the copy? <laughs> so I grabbed it immediately because it was also the really nice UK cover, which I really like. Um, so I, <laughs> and then on your drive not. home, you listen to some other podcasts and got distracted exactly. by other right. books. <laughs> I went from number one to number 423 on my list. No, <laughs> it's still very high on my list. And, and hearing Stu's recommendation makes me want to read it again or read it here very soon. <laughs> All right. And our next friend is Rebecca Hussey. Thanks so much. We got all the folks now from One Bright Book Podcast. I know. So thank you, Rebecca. Uh, we're excited to hear your choice. Hello, this is Rebecca Hussey, co-host of the One Bright Book Podcast. And I'd like to recommend an essay collection by Teju Cole called Black Paper, subtitled Writing in a Dark Time. It was published in October 2021 by the University of Chicago Press. You may know Teju Cole from his novel Open City or his previous essay collection called Known and Strange Things. I worry that people may miss Black Paper because it was published by a university press and not a major publisher, but it's so good. The essays look at the relationship of art to its cultural moment, discussing artists from the past such as Caravaggio as well as people working today. Cole is great at thinking through ethical problems and philosophical questions and how the past and present relate. He manages to look at our present moment with clear-eyed wisdom and generosity. He's such a beautiful writer. The book itself is gorgeous, with many full-color images included. I found these essays absorbing, inspiring, calming, and provoking, somehow all at once. Don't miss them. Thanks, Rebecca. I have not read this one by Teju Cole. I've only read uh, Open City, so but and I thought that was a fantastic book. I actually haven't, you, read, I haven't read anything. Huh? None of them. Well, well, there you go. Well, I recommend Open City, and I'm glad to hear Rebecca is recommending even more of his his work. I thought Open City was fantastic. It's definitely a book that I can see you getting into. And yeah. not to not to detract from Rebecca's, I'm going to make sure that I get to Black Paper pretty soon. Yeah, sounds really good. 
And we'll round out this particular segment uh, with Ben O'Connell, uh, who guested with us early on in 2022. Looking forward to hearing your choice. Hi, Trevor and Paul. Thanks so much for asking me to participate in your year-end show. I had a great reading year, which made it tough to narrow down my selection. To make it easier on myself, I, I ruled out the established classics and any books you've discussed on Mooks and Gripes. Two novels stood out from what remained, Brom Presser's The Book of Dirt and Will Wiles' The Way In. I'm still sitting with Presser's novel, having only finished it earlier this week, but Wiles' book has stayed with me for a few months now. I keep The Way In on the same mental bookshelf where I have Flan O'Brien's The Third Policeman and Leonora Carrington's The Hearing Trumpet, although it's much newer, it came out in 2014. The protagonist, Neil Double, is a conference surrogate who experiences a professional crisis at a conference of conference organizers uh, that precipitates revelations, both sinister and surreal, about a hotel chain that is entangled with his personal history. The weigh-in could have been simply weird, but Wiles is a superb stylist, and there's tremendous joy in watching him dismantle and reassemble the most quotidian, bland aspects of modern life into a keenly observed work of great depth and exceptional wit. Thanks again, guys, and Happy New Year. All right, Ben, thank you so much. I clearly need to read The Book of Dirt since it's come up on both of these episodes now through various ways. So mm-hmm. uh, excited for that. Yeah, absolutely. It sounds really good. All right. Well, we'll be back with uh, some more friends here in a few minutes, but we're going to do our number three and our number two. Take it away, Paul. All right. My number three um, is The Brothers Karamazov by Dostoevsky, translated. I read the Uh, Pavir and Volokonsky edition, mm -hmm. which I know can be a controversial choice, but I really liked it. (laughs) Um, So, you know, every year... I try to read several classics or, you know, big, great books or whatever, especially over the last few years, I've, I've gone for maybe the great books, but I think it's so nice to sprinkle in some, some classics from different time periods, you know, into my reading. And I always find it, you know, there's always that risk of disappointment about these books that are talked up so much and have become like these pillars, but more often than not, I actually find myself, you know, being blown away and joining the choir, seeing their praises. And that's certainly the case for this one, you know, over the past few years, I've had this experience. I've talked about it a little bit. Don Quixote, Magic Mountain, you know, revisiting Jane Austen this year was just mm-hmm. wonderful. Um, you know, and then of course, Ulysses Proust, all these different ones where, again, there's that risk that you could be like, well, I don't know what all the hype's about, but that just doesn't seem to happen very often. Most of the time, you know, even if I don't yeah. love it, I usually I love it, but even if I don't, you can really appreciate why it has stood the test of time and why people still, you know, talk about it so much. So, you know, the Brothers Karamazov had been on my bucket list for years, you know, ever since I read Crime and Punishment, probably, you know, at least a decade ago. And so I was really glad to finally get to it. Um, you know, we brought it up a few times this year. <laughs> and as I made my way through it, you know, we chatted about it a little bit. But I just wanted to emphasize again how it's so complex, but also how modern and easy it is to read. You mm-hmm. know, sometimes I think that's another risk with classics is you get intimidated and think it's just going to be a slog or really difficult. And I mean, there are sections of this where it, it, you know, he doesn't shy away from philosophy and religion in these deeper topics, but overall I found it, you know, it's really a page turner in a lot of ways. It's 
you know, a murder mystery. There's a courtroom mm-hmm. drama. There's <laughs> those explorations of, you know, philosophy and religion and things like that that I talk about, but they're kind of sprinkled throughout. So the pacing of it, I found, you know, surprisingly compelling, really. Um, obviously, it focuses on the family, the Karamazovs, um, but also features several love triangles, you know, so there's no no stereotypes of a dry or dusty classic here. There's got all kinds of fun stuff going on. Um, but like I said, in addition to the, all the plot and the complex interactions between all the characters, there are some wonderful monologues or digressions, as there often is in Russian literature, you know. There's Ivan's chapters about the Grand Inquisitor, which are probably some of the most famous. Or we talked a little bit in an earlier episode about the Elder and some of his, you know, when he's holding forth to his disciples and and talking. And some of those sections are so good. Here's an example of that style of the writing that I marked that I think is really good. It says, the centripetal force on our planet is still fearfully strong, Alyosha. I have a longing for life and I go on living in spite of logic. Though I may not believe in the order of the universe, yet I love the sticky little leaves as they open in spring. I love the blue sky. I love some people, whom one loves you know sometimes without knowing why. I love some great deeds done by men, though I've long ceased perhaps to have faith in them. Yet from old habit, one's heart prizes them. Here they have brought the soup for you. Eat it, or it will do, it will do you good. It's first-rate soup. They know how to make it here. I want to travel in Europe, Alyosha. I shall set off from here, and yet I know that I'm only going to a graveyard. But it's a most precious graveyard, that's what it is. Precious are the dead that lie there. Every stone over them speaks of such burning life in the past, of such passionate faith in their work, their truth, their struggle, and their science. That I know I shall fall on the ground and kiss those stones and weep over them. Though I'm convinced in my heart that it's long been nothing but a graveyard, and I shall not weep from despair, but simply because I shall be happy in my tears, I shall steep my soul in emotion. I love the sticky leaves in spring, the blue sky. That's all it is. It's not a matter of intellect or logic. It's loving with one's inside, with one's stomach. And it's like, wow, it's just so good. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, it, it's, I, I hate to say the human condition because it sounds so corny, but it's talking about like, you know, all these, just what it is to be a person. I love the blue sky. I love some people, but he also says like, I love them, but I might not have much faith in them. And I really liked that. It's just this acknowledgement of the world is a damaged place. You're going to get hurt, but you still find these moments of beauty and these reasons to go on. So that's what I mean about, you know, just over the stretch of time, it's easy to think that people back then thought differently than us or, you know, whatever, like as, as a student in college, you know, sometimes you have to kind of have this dawning that people are still the same as they've always been. And I think passages like that just go a long way toward that. So you know, I was really pleasantly surprised by the complexity of some of the thoughts that go into all of this, you know, and, and the gray areas that he introduces as well. It's not him just espousing his views and, and holding forth, you know, like some people might think. Mm-hmm. So um, so for anyone who's a fan of Russian literature and all its messy, you know, complicated glory, <laughs> I think this is a great choice for those who haven't read it. Um, so, yeah, I was absolutely thrilled that I finally got to it and was happy to see that it not only held up to, but exceeded even what I was expecting. So. Excellent. I know, I know it's a favorite of yours, or at least one that you've really enjoyed reading. Yeah, well, and I read it over 20 years ago now. And so I, I remember a lot of it quite well and other things I have no idea yeah. what I've forgotten even. But the thing that's disturbing to me is I when you started reading it, I thought, oh, I'm going to go find my old copy. I had that like purple Bantam Classics mm. uh, copy that I loved. I toted that around England with me while I was reading it. I wrote in it, you know, I put where I was when I finished it, you know, at the end of it and the date. 
I can't find it. So oh, no. I'm really kind of sad. I don't know if I got rid of it one day thinking, oh, it doesn't really matter or not. Um, and it doesn't. But at the same time, I kind of, when you got to it, I thought, I'll pull it out and see what passages I highlighted. Just kind of mm-hmm. see if that refreshes things. Mm-hmm. But I do remember, you know, picking it up and thinking, well, I'll just give this a go tonight. You know, see see how it feels. And all of a sudden I'm 50, 60 pages in because you're getting to know these these raucous characters and this horrible yeah. man and, you know, this father and, and boy, it was, it was exciting. You know, it was, I loved it from page one yeah, and uh, was swept away by it. Exactly. I know every, every one of the brothers is so unique and you kind of get these little path or sections of the book that focus on the different ones. And mm-hmm. as, as happens with a good book, you're always sad when it switches perspectives because you were getting so attached to hearing about that character but then it doesn't take long before you're fully enmeshed with the next one and you're on board again. And it's just amazing the, <laughs> the power of, of that book and how human, like I said, I think that's what it is. Like they all represent different parts of humanity in some ways, but the overall package of just all the complexity and messiness of being a human, I think is one of the things I really liked about it. Well, I, I realized something just now that also I, I wish I hadn't, but I read that half a lifetime ago for me. I oh, read it boy. in 2001 because I remember, you know, again, I was on a trip to England. Mm. And so I remember it was spring of 2001. I was 21, just about to turn 22. And now I am 42, about to turn 43 this upcoming year. And so that was half a lifetime ago. Certainly, I am probably equipped for a, a reread and... Mm-hmm. I would love to do that sometimes. So. That's a great idea and a great point because that is one of the amazing things about not just classics, but any book, but especially mm-hmm. classics, reading them at different stages of your life. Just like we said, when I read Jane Austen this year, after I hadn't mm-hmm. read some of those since college, you know, you still appreciate them, but in very completely different ways, you yeah. connect with different characters, different passages stand out to you. So that would be a fun project if you decide to do it. Yeah. some Someday I, I would like to. Can't. Mm-hmm. <laughs> You know, after after I read all the other books that came up on this episode, but maybe not say. too. Who knows? Who knows? <laughs> all right. Well, my number three is one that I think you're looking forward to reading uh, sometime soon. It is Anthony Trollope's Barchester Towers. I love these books. I this you know the next one for me is Doctor Thorne. I haven't started it yet, but I can't wait because I just love this world and I love Trollope's narrator, who is someone who feels it's his responsibility to be fair to his characters. He will, he will admit sometimes when he doesn't like them, mm-hmm. but he'll also talk about his own, you know, just this, this is the omniscient narrator, his own, you know, senses. And there's one part at the beginning. I don't want to spoil this too much for you. So this is on page 14. Okay. But it is kind of a spoiler. Um, you remember our protagonist of the warden, Septimus mm-hmm. Harding, and how he had the daughter, Eleanor, who was married to John Bold, who was kind of the troublemaker of that first novel, not for doing anything wrong, but he's the one who thought there shouldn't be such a lucrative uh, job as the warden in that book. Well, at the very start of this one, um, Eleanor is a widow. Uh, John has, has died and it's not long after the warden, you know, so he dies young. And I, I love the way, he talks about her. This is the narrator. This isn't Septimus. This isn't, you know, anybody else that's in this book other than, you know, someone who can see everybody. It says, poor Eleanor Bold. How well does that widow's cap become her and the solemn gravity with which she devotes herself to her new duties? Poor Eleanor. 
poor Eleanor. I cannot say that with me, John Bold was ever a favorite. I never thought him worthy of the wife he had won, but in her estimation, he was most worthy. Hers was one of those feminine hearts which cling to a husband, not with idolatry, for worship can admit of no defect in its idol, but with the perfect tenacity of ivy. As the parasite plant will follow even the defects of the trunk which it embraces, so did Eleanor cling to and love the very faults of her husband. Mm. I just, he is so good at these little passages. And similar to, say, George Eliot in Middlemarch, you know, he, he's, there's this whole community and you get to where you love and, you know, kind of hate certain characters. And then he does things like this. Um, remember in Middlemarch where, you know, you just hate Kazabon with mm-hmm. good reason. But there's just the part where she takes you to his place in the in the evening, late at night, when he's alone and dealing with his own fears, insecurities, loneliness, um, existence. And it doesn't make you like, oh, I actually love this guy and everything he does is is fine. It's just like, oh, wow. There's another human heart beating here. Yeah. And some of it's very recognizable. You know, Trollope just does that with these books that make you, you love every character to, to one degree or another. And you get to, <laughs> it's so fun. Again, I told you this when I was reading it. I don't understand why anybody would say, don't read The Warden first. First off, it's a fantastic book. Why not read one of this, this amazing book, The Warden? But it's absolutely important to this book. These are the same characters, you know. It's I thought you'd go to some other corner of the town and deal with completely different characters, but you start with with Bishop Grantley, who or, or Archdeacon Grantley, who wants to become the bishop. Mm-hmm. You know, we've dealt with him in the last book. Septimus Harding is wandering around with him uh, at the at the start, you know, and and he's a central character. Here's Eleanor. How would you even know who John Bold is or what kind of role he played? If right. you hadn't read that book. So yes, no one skipped the warden uh, again yeah. because it's amazing, but also it's these books, you know, read them in order. We, we mm-hmm. always kind of thought, well, how do I even start these? And I think that's because people say, Oh, I just started with uh, family parsonage or something like that. And sure. I'm sure you loved it. And I'm sure that's not a, you know, you didn't necessarily need everything to enjoy it, but my word, what a rich um, community we've got here. So, yeah. yes. <laughs> That's awesome. I'm so glad it made it onto your list. I was hoping it did. Because um, last year, I know, oh, like yeah. the Warden was in your top five, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So that's two years in a row, top five. We'll, we'll see if Dr. Thorne can can live up to its reputation. For yeah. me. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Something tells me you might be pretty safe, but we'll have to see. We'll see. We'll see. It might, it might fall off a cliff with that. That's one, right. You know? <laughs> <laughs> Jump the shark. All right. What's your number three, Paul? Or sorry. Sorry. What's your number two, Paul? We're moving through this. We are. So I was so happy to hear that Drifts and The Birds both made your end of list, uh, end of Mm. your list, you know, just because they're ones that I had talked about and kind of recommended to you. And I'm happy to say that a book that you recommended to me made its way all the way up to number two on my list as well. Hmm. So some of our listeners are probably sick of hearing us <laughs> talk about Isley, Lauren Isley, but uh, I, I Lor- type it in the show notes every week. Exactly. So. <laughs> just automatically. Yeah. Lauren Isley's collected essays on nature and the cosmos and specifically volume one is the one that I'm going to touch on. So um, 
you know, I'll try to do what you did for me, Trevor, and, and win them all over, even though I keep talking about this over and over again, there's a reason for it. So as is my annual tradition, I'm cheating a little because technically this is, you know, I'm including this entire volume of this two volume set published by Library of America. And it does include several collections of essays, The Immense Journey, The Firmament of Time, The Unexpected Universe, and then Uncollected Prose. Um, so on an, one of our earlier episodes this year, you read an excerpt from his essay, The Slit. Mm-hmm. And that's where he's kind of climbing down through this, you know, gaping hole in the earth or a crack or whatever, and comes across an ancient skull. And he starts to kind of think about what that means in as far as like time and evolution and everything. And that piece is in The Immense Journey, I believe, which contains several of my very favorite essays in all of these collections. Um, but what continually amazed me as I read through these was just how how diverse and rich they were and how many different topics he's able to write about and, and the different styles that he can adapt. He's just such an amazing writer. Sometimes if you think of somebody who's a scientist, maybe in your, at least in my stereotypical mind, I might think, you know, it's a little dry and dusty, but the, the content itself is fascinating or something like that. But no, this, this guy has it all. Um, I found an excerpt from a review by a woman named Deb Derrick. And she says, I often wonder as I sit down to read any Lauren Isley book, which Isley will be there to greet me. Will it be Isley, the forsaken child, Isley, the teacher or Isley, the wandering philosopher who indeed is Lauren Isley, a quote, imaginative naturalist, according to the cover of his book, the immense journey, an anthropologist, a scholar, a poet, a genius. Isley wears all these hats. He's the teacher who backs away from the podium after an engaging lecture to make a quick dash for his office. He's a member of the expedition who hunts for bones, sleeping by the blazing campfire at night. Indeed, what makes Isley so fascinating is that he is a complex and multifaceted individual. But it is Isley the storyteller, the consummate raconteur, whom I most want to read when I'm curled up with a book for the evening. And I just really liked that. Mm -hmm. That really sums it up nicely. He, You get insights into all these different parts of his life, you know, like this... Indiana Jones type, you know, maybe not that, but like he's out in the field, you know, like she said, sleeping by the fire and digging around in the dust. And sometimes he's like giving these, you know, talks from a podium that we end up, you know, getting little excerpts of here. So such a wide range of topics and styles. And he does look at these huge, you know, things like evolution and time and the universe. But I especially loved his ability to help you kind of see the world in different ways. So sometimes that's looking at something enormous, you know, like geological time, but other times the focus was really small. Um, and one of my favorite essays in this whole thing was um, called The Judgment of the Birds. I don't know if you remember that one, but I'll just read a quick excerpt. It says, New York is not on the whole the best place to enjoy the downright miraculous nature of the planet. There are, I do not doubt, many remarkable stories to be heard there and many strange sights to be seen, but to grasp a marvel fully, it must be savored from all aspects. This cannot be done while one is being jostled and hustled along a crowded street. Nevertheless, in any city, there are true wildernesses where a man can be alone. It can happen in a hotel room or on the high roofs at dawn. One night on the 20th floor of a midtown hotel, I awoke in the dark and grew restless. On an impulse, I climbed upon the broad, old-fashioned windowsill, opened the curtains, and peered out. It was the hour just before dawn, the hour when men sigh in their sleep, or, if awake, strive to focus their wavering eyesight upon a world emerging from the shadows. I leaned out sleepily through the open window. I had expected depth, but not the sight I saw. I found I was looking down from that great height into a series of curious cupolas or lofts that I could just barely make out in the darkness. As I looked, 
The outlines of these lofts became more distinct because the light was being reflected from the wings of pigeons, who, in utter silence, were beginning to float outward upon the city. In and out through the open slits in the cupolas passed the white-winged birds on their mysterious errands. At this hour, the city was theirs, and quietly, without the brush of a single wingtip against stone in that high, eerie place, they were taking over the spires of Manhattan. They were pouring upward in a light that was not yet perceptible to human eyes, while far down in the black darkness of the alleys it was still midnight. As I crouched half asleep across the sill, I had a moment's illusion that the world had changed in the night, as in some immense snowfall, and that if I were to leave, it would have to be, as these other inhabitants were doing, by the window. I should have to launch out into that great bottomless void, with the simple confidence of young birds reared high up there among the familiar chimney pots and interposed horrors of the abyss. I leaned farther out. To and fro went the white wings, to and fro. There was no sounds from any of them. They knew man was asleep, and this light for a little while was theirs. Or perhaps I had only dreamed about man in this city of wings, which he could surely never have built. Perhaps I myself was one of these birds, dreaming unpleasantly, a moment of old dangers far below as I teetered on the window's ledge. Around and around went the wings. It needed only a little courage, only a little shove from the window ledge to enter that city of light. The muscles of my hands were already making little premonitory lunges. I wanted to enter that city and go away over the roofs in the first dawn. I wanted to enter it so badly that I drew back carefully into the room and opened the hall door. I found my coat on the chair, and it slowly became clear to me that there was a way down through the floors, that I was, after all, only a man. Wow. Like, when I read that, I was just blown away. That's fairly early in the first book, and that's where I started to realize <laughs> what he was capable of. Because, I mean, yes, there's some science there, but that's just great writing. I mean, that particular passage is more about things that are not what you would normally consider to be, like, scientific writing. Um, so, anyway, that I know that was a little long, but... To me, that just sums up what I love about him. You know, the I've talked about this with Robert McFarland, that ability to find beauty and nature in unexpected and maybe even urban places, which is a skill that, you know, given the way our world is going, is going to be increasingly valuable, you know, as, as these wild places kind of shrink. So something like that, that's set in the middle of Manhattan, but he still finds this magical moment, I thought was just really amazing. So like I said, there's all kinds of variety in these books, and I'm really looking forward to reading the second volume. You know, I don't know if I'll do it in the coming year or if I'll savor it for a little while, but I can't believe I have a whole other book of these to to look forward to. They're amazing. So thanks again for the <laughs> you are oh, you betcha. right. <laughs> I'm glad that you you got through them and and found the treasure that I found in them for sure. Yeah. And I'm glad you're able to able to take some time uh, with it on here. I'll be brief on my next one because I've talked about it quite a bit already in a few episodes in the past. So I don't need to, don't need to take too long. Plus I, I've, as I said before, I can't find any passages that would be appropriate to read. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and this is Percival Everett's The Trees. Uh, again, I talked about this. I know on our episode about book prizes with Lori Feathers, and I think I talked about it on a few other ones. This is a very uncomfortable book because it's dealing with, something horrific in our past. It deals with it in kind of a grotesque and potentially exploitative way. I know people who are very angry at the the direction that um, Everett takes the Emmett Till murder, at mm-hmm. least by 
by the way that it looks at the beginning. You know, this is a, this is a book where we go back down to uh, the same community where Emmett Till was was murdered back in the fifties, and he brings us up to date when they're. Uh, murderers, uh, their descendants are being murdered. And when they find that person's body, they also find the body of a black boy uh, next to them, uh, which they think is Emmett Teal. And so, yeah, it's, it's grotesque. It's horrific. And yet he writes it with a tone that's humorous, very mm-hmm. disconcertingly. You know, it's almost like the Coen brothers kind of stuff. It's, it's horrific, but there's, there's humor as he explores the stereotypes and treats them as stereotypes, these people. And it can be tough to find the wavelength that I think Everett is writing on because he's not just being irreverent. He is being irreverent, but there's a really good purpose for that. And it is a very serious book. You know, you talked about in Dasa Derndich's uh, Trieste, the, you know, several pages of names. Well, he has the same thing in the trees. There's a chapter that goes on for pages of uh, lynching victims and where they were murdered. Uh, most of them, you know, black men and women and children in the South. But then you start to spread and you see Asian uh, names crop up in places where you and I live, you know? So as Everett is going through this and everybody can kind of, you know, get a sense, well, I wasn't there, you know, for us, it's like, well, that's a different part of, you know, the country, a different part of history. And then he continues to pull you in as a problem, you know, as, as someone complicit in, in all of this, he doesn't let, let you escape. And it is, it is an amazing, um, horrific, uh, funny, but, uh, sad and serious novel. And I think one of the most important ones I've read in a very long time. And as I said, makes me want to go and read everything else he's written, which I hear is sometimes, you know, on similar themes, but also quite different. I did read Dr. No, which just came out and, you know, it, some of this is there and some of it isn't, but I, I still think the trees is, um, you know, masterful. And I'm glad that that's where I started with his work because it is fantastic. I actually ended up listening to this book um, huh. within the last month or so based on, you know, largely based on your talking about it. And yeah, I think you did a great job of summaring, summarizing a book that's really hard to mm-hmm. summarize because you kept throwing out different adjectives about it and they're all accurate. And even though some of them seem like they're polar opposites or pejorative, yeah, yeah, or pejorative, it's all true. I mean, it is just a very complicated and what you said about the wavelength is very true. Cause there were points in the book where I was like, what, what is he doing? You know, I, I couldn't quite get a feel and then all of a sudden it would click. Oh, okay. I think I got it. And you would get carried away again. So what you said about the names was really important. Cause I thought, the same thing as I was listening to this list of names, hearing it on audio was probably a a different experience in some ways than reading it. Um, And like you said, you could tell that a lot of it happened in the past, but then all of a sudden I started recognizing some of the names and you realized not only was it including lynching victims, but there was also near the end Trayvon Martin and some of these 
people mm-hmm. who had been killed. Yeah, as he police. pulls it in, Matthew Shepard, I believe. Us. Yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. So what you said is exactly right. He doesn't let anybody feel comfortable. He pokes at stereotypes across the board. You know, there's people wearing mm-hmm. red hats that he'll poke his poke fun at, or or not even fun, but just you know take issue with. But then he also takes issue with other people that might be on the other end of you know a spectrum from them. So yeah. I'm really glad. I mean, that's deserving for sure of a mention in this list because it's, <laughs> like you said, important. Yeah. Well, let's step back just a second again and, uh, you know, cool down. Yeah. <laughs> so we let our, our listeners and friends uh, join us again. We will start with Simon Thomas. Simon, take it away. Let us know what your book of the year is. Hi, this is Simon from uh, the podcast TL Books and the blog Stuck in a Book. And uh, sometimes people ask me why I keep books on my shelf for so long if I've not read them. Like, if you've got a book there for 15 years, surely you're never going to read it. Well, one of my absolute favorite reads this year have been on my shelf for 15 years, and I finally read A Jest of God by Margaret Lawrence from 1966. I'm sure it's well known and loved by all the Canadian listeners. For people who don't know, it's set in a small town in Manitoba, it's about a school teacher who has an unhealthily dependent relationship with her mother, Rachel is her name, and she has been there in that town her whole life. She teaches at the school where she used to be a child. She doesn't have uh, any much romantic interest in that town. She is just doesn't see any hope. And then into that world comes Nick, a man she knew back uh, when she was a child. Um. I'm not going to spoil too much, but it's not a romantic, flimsy novel, and not everything goes well. But it's perfectly observed, an absolute delightful book. Uh, Only about 200 pages and absolutely worth reading. Thanks so much, Simon. And yeah, Paul, we have our episode on books that have been sitting on your shelf for far too long. Mm -hmm. Simon's a good, uh, you know, gave us a good case for keeping them around. (laughs) Yes, he did. He always does. (laughs) Next, we'll hear from Jackie Wine, who joined us to talk about hotel novels a while back. Uh, Thanks for joining us again here, Jackie. Here you go. One of my favourite reads this year was a book called A Helping Hand by the English writer Celia Dale. It's an old book, originally published in 1966, but recently reissued in a stylish new edition by Daunt Books in the UK. Now, if I had to position it in terms of genre, I would probably describe this as domestic horror, the type of story where sinister activities take place behind the veil of neck curtains in the privacy of the protagonist's home. And without wishing to give too much away in terms of plot, it's an icily compelling tale of greed and deception, stealthily executed amidst carefully orchestrated conversations and endless cups of tea. In essence, the plot revolves around an outwardly respectable middle-aged couple, Maisie and Josh Evans, who take under their wing an elderly lady named Mrs Fingal. Now, Maisie is a former nurse and Josh seems equally attentive, so at first sight the Evanses seem ideally placed to take care of Mrs Fingal. However, once the story gets going, the reader soon realises that something very sinister is afoot. One of the things that Dale does so well here is to let the reader in on the true horror of what's unfolding, 
So she drops a little word here and another little hint there, such that it's all very cleverly done. So in summary, then, if you're a fan of Patricia Highsmith or Shirley Jackson, this is a book for you. Oh, Jackie's always got a lot of recommendations that I feel I need to get to much sooner than I'll probably be able to. But <laughs> I know. And as as is usually the case, people are adding so many books that I have not even had on my radar, which is a wonderful thing. Next, we'll hear from Rods Pandit. At least that's how I know her name from, you know, Twitter and Instagram. Mm -hmm. And I always love seeing what she's reading. And uh, here's her book of the year. Hello, everyone. A big thank you, Trevor and Paul, for inviting me to speak on your wonderful podcast. A brief intro about me. I am Radhika Pandit from Mumbai, India. I am an avid reader. You will find me on Twitter as Rads Pandit. But I also have my own blog called Radhika's Reading Retreat, where I regularly write about books. So the book I'm going to talk about today is uh, Time the Present by the American author Tess Lessinger, an absolutely brilliant collection of short stories and easily one of the highlights of my reading this year. This title is published by Boiler House Press under its excellent Recovered Books imprint. So these stories are largely set in the 1930s, a period of great turmoil in America. The country was grappling with the Great Depression. There was also the grim prospect of the Second World War looming large. And the sheer variety of themes on display is astonishing. Schlesinger talks about marriage, relationships, unemployment, class differences, racial prejudice. In fact, there's also a story that highlights America's consumerist corporate culture. To me, the real strength of this collection is the way she depicts the economic perils and complex social issues of her time and how they had a big impact on marriages and relationships. So this collection has 19 stories. As I said, they were written mostly in the 1930s, but there's a timeless quality to them. They're astute, tragic, perceptive, all at the same time. There are two stories that particularly stood out for me. One is Friedman's Annie, an incisive tale of class differences and manipulation. And the other is Mrs. Flinders, a scalpel-like, hard-hitting tale of an abortion and how it sets in motion the unraveling of a marriage. Really, really superb stuff. Yeah, another that I, I didn't didn't know anything about before oh. now. <laughs> but, but they're all so good at selling them. So yeah, that sounds great. I know. Thank you so much. <laughs> And uh, last, we'll hear from Nancy Pearl, who joined us to talk about the magic of libraries. Uh, I know Nancy has a choice that Paul will will uh, feel very happy about. <laughs> the book that I want to recommend is one of those books that I think appeals to a wide a wide variety of readers, people looking for uh, fast moving stories, people looking for great characters, people who want to be there. Um, and, and the writing is pretty good. This book won the Pulitzer prize. What is this book? It's Lonesome Dove by Larry McMurtry. And for me, what I, what I got out of it, um, Larry Larry McMurtry wanted to demythologize the West, and instead he kind of, I read this somewhere, he re-mythologized it with the two main characters in the book, ex-Texas Rangers, 
good friends, Woodrow Call and Gus McRae. And those are two characters who, once you read this book, you will never, ever forget them. They will just remain as part of your, part of you. Um, so that's Lonesome Dove by Larry McMurtry. Oh, thanks so much, Nancy. And uh, Paul, you, you agree? You, you like that she talks about Lonesome Dove again? Yeah, like I needed to like Nancy Pearl more. She had to throw that in the mix. Yeah, she's just <laughs> raised to a whole new level. Amazing. All right. Well, everybody, thanks so much for joining us to you know inundate people with book recommendations and get us all excited for the year that's passed and as well as the year that's coming with more great reads on the horizon. But here, here's the pressure, Paul. I All think right. I know what your number one is because I think we spoiled it. <laughs> we did, but yeah, that's okay. Um, for anybody who's been following along, it's like poker where you start counting the cards and figuring out which ones haven't been played yet. Yes, it is The Birds by Tarje Vesa, Vesa, who I still can't say his name, um, translated from the Norwegian by Michael Barnes and Torborn Stoverud. You did a great job of describing this book. Um, and I had even considered, you know, we often try to touch on different books and not, you know, hit on the same stuff over and over again. And I, I contemplated after it was number six on your list, whether I would want to swap something else in. But not only did I decide to keep this in my top five, I just could not justify it not being my top book of the year. Um, oh, I just love it so much. We were talking about how I could hardly believe that I'd read it last year. And I think that's partially because I feel like it's already become like one of those foundational books in my life. And so in a lot of ways, it feels like I've always known about it, even though it turns out I read it only about a year ago. So, um, you know, I've talked about it here. I've talked about it on Sean Mooney's Bite Size Book Chats. We talked about it on our Archipelago discussion with Tess Lewis, you know, so I keep evangelizing about it. And I know some people are probably sick of hearing me talk about it, but I can't help it. It's so good. Um, what you mentioned about the characterization and the beauty of the writing, I think is what really stands out to me. I think Matisse is, I don't know. He's got to be one of my favorite characters that I've ever come across in literature. He is so unique. And the way that the author writes him, where you get these insights into his mind and the way that he sees the world is just so beautiful. And you touched on something that I really liked where this could have turned into something different where the townspeople or his sister, it could have turned into a, you know, something where they were just always mocking him, but there is, it's realistic and it's not schmaltzy, but there's a kindness or at least a willingness to try to reach out and have people understand him that I really appreciated. And so just real quickly, I'm going to read one more section. You, you read a section that kind of gave a little bit of insight into some of that, but um, this is just where he is starting to come to this realization that things might be changing. He's trying to grasp what that means in his life. And he says, he would have to pretend he wanted to make a trip to the store. He made trips there more often now. Since his great moment on the pier recently, he walked calmly into the store in front of everybody in a way he'd never done before. So he'd had these experiences lately that just made him feel like he's starting to change as a person. For all he knew, he was a respected man now. Rowing up with the girl like this had really been a tremendous success. So one afternoon he asked, do you want me to go and do any shopping today? He'd even shaved. You're a changed person these days, said Haga, always pestering me about going to the store. He didn't protest. She had no idea what the real reason for his trip was, that it was a matter of life and death. But what about money, he said, feeling rather small. She found some money for the shopping and a little bit extra for Mattis. Thank you. I don't want any candy this time, he said quickly, if that's what you're thinking. Why not? We're no worse off now than we've been before. But how can you think about candy when lightning shatters the treetops, said Mattis. 
succeeding in touching briefly on the secret topic, but it had no effect on Hega. So I should have given a little backstory. There's these two aspen trees that are paired and he named them after him and his sister. And he has this like almost spiritual attachment to them. And one of them was struck by lightning. And this has kind of like shattered his worldview or at least caused him to question what does that mean in this bigger sense? And so he's going to the store. He wants to go check out these trees, but then he's also like been enjoying going to the store more because he's feeling like there's this different side of him that's starting to emerge. Surely there are more important things to do. Think about now. I think I thought you'd understand that too. Take the money, Matisse, said Hega, unmoved. Buy yourself some candy, the same as you've always done. Be careful, said Matisse in great agitation, and he left the extra money behind on the table so that he had just enough with him to pay for the serious item. He had to get away before she frightened him even more. What he wanted was a good excuse for walking along the main road and perhaps meeting some of his nearest neighbors. They would be bound to know more about the two treetops than anyone else. The storekeeper lived a little too far away to know which one was which. Matisse had to find out who had been hit. And so I could go on and on, and I don't know that I did a great job of of laying that out. I should have explained the backstory a little bit more. But to me, it's just this idea of watching his inner growth and his search for truth. And sometimes it's in these obscure things like lightning striking a tree, but also his ways of trying to relate to the people around him. He ends up going to the store there, and he'd always gone in for candy. That's why she gave him the money. But this time he has this more, you know, as he sees it, a more important kind of adult mission. But the part that I thought was kind of heartbreaking and poignant about that whole scene is he goes and he does what he thinks he needs to do. But then they offer him some candy and he takes not one, but two pieces and eats them on the way out. So even though he is trying to, in his mind, make these strides towards being more mature or, you know, taking care of his sister and everything, there is still the true sense of him as this person who is innocent and takes simple pleasures in these things around him. So, you know, as is so often the case, it's sometimes hardest to talk about the books you love the most. And I don't know that I've done a good job, but hopefully cumulatively between your great description last week, <laughs> yeah, my stumbling version today and all the other times I've talked about it, people can get some idea of just how much I love this book. And I'm looking forward to reading more from this author. I have two of his other books um, that I'm mm-hmm. looking forward to digging into soon. So that's yeah, my top too. book of the year. Me too. Excellent. Excellent. Yeah. All right. Well, my top book of the year will take us back to the beginning of the episode where I started with uh, reading a little bit about Mark Haber's favorite book of the year. Well, Mark showing up again, I thought that St. Sebastian's Abyss was tremendous. I thought Mm -hmm. it was funny. I thought that its exploration of friendship was poignant and I thought it was sad. It's a book about old age as Mm -hmm. well, you know, that, uh, that deals with so much of a life and uh, this life of friends who have been, uh, together on so many things, but also competitors because they're in the same field of study. You know, they're both uh, scholars of, of art and art history. And in particular of this painting, St. Sebastian's Abyss by Count Hugo Beckenbauer. And it's about that they dedicated their whole lives to these things. And then wondering at the end of it all, you know, what, what have we done? Kind of thing, mm-hmm. and it's told from the perspective of one of them who is traveling by plane from New York all the way over to Berlin because his friend Schmidt, who he hasn't talked to in a long time, um, is dying, and said, "You need to come and see me on my deathbed." So he's going, and it's these very short, uh, frenetic because he's agitated. He he both wants to see his friend. You get the sense anyway, and doesn't. 
And of course, the doesn't is what really pops out in the text. It's what's on the surface and what he's talking about. And, you know, it's about him kind of rehashing their years together, their feud, his his righteousness, his right position on so many things and his friends, selfishness and and foibles and and problems. And as, as you go through these very short little sections, you just build up this this whole idea of who this person is, not necessarily do I feel we get to know Schmidt very well, you know, because it, that's not the point we're, we're, we're seeing this, the narrator really, really kind of digging in and, and dealing with, with things. So yeah, St. Sebastian Abyss. I know I read a little part that was funny when we had Simon Thomas on because he's talking about, you know, uh, American criticism and, and, and our, you know, things like that. And I thought that was a lot of fun, but it's a really, uh, excellently written book it just you fall through each of these little sections because they're they're like Caesar Ira or, or Thomas Bernhardt they're they're ranty at times mm-hmm. they're they're fast paced they repeat you know you get the sense that this is someone who's just circling around in their mind over one topic they're obsessed they can't get through it they can't process it very well and it's really a, an excellent book and a great companion piece to his debut novel, uh, Reinhardt's Garden, that came out a few years ago. And, um, you know, delighted to see him posting on Instagram about a forthcoming novel. I think I it looks like it might be called Ada, just from the, uh, you know, from what he posted. But the little teaser he posted. Yeah. Yeah. I know. I can't either. I'm so glad that several of the books on your list were ones that were very easily could have and probably should have been on mine. So that is a, a wonderful choice. And like you said, I'm, I, I love both of the books that he's published so far and I'm so anxious to see where he goes mm-hmm. next because he has such a fascinating mind. And I just love the way that Mark, you know, the characters he creates and their, their yeah. ways of looking at the world is just so fascinating. Yeah. And such a friendly jovial voice, you know, again, the bookseller who is out doing so much work at this time of year in particular. And, Absolutely. Seem you know every time that I'm communicating with him, there's just a joviality, and uh, you know just thanks for for all of that. <laughs> yeah, exactly, and thank you for your passion for for reading and and your great taste. I mean, like I've said before, he has some of the most wonderful book recommendations that of anyone I've ever talked to. So yeah, he's just a great all around guy. Yeah. All right, Paul. Here we are, another year with the capstone on it. And very nice to spend all of it, you know, every few weeks recording with you about books and to recollect and and uh, reflect on these things. And I'm looking forward to 2023. I am too. I can't wait to keep it going. Thank you so much for everything. It's been wonderful. Thank you listeners again for all of your support and uh, the fun conversations that we've had throughout the year. Uh, I hope you are having a wonderful holiday season. Uh, This is coming out right between Christmas and New Year's. So Happy New Year, everybody. We will see you soon. Thanks, everybody. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Mooks and the Gripes podcast. You can follow the Mooks and the Gripes and get show notes and book and film reviews at mooksandgripes.com. On Twitter, you can find Trevor at Mooks and Paul at BiblioPaul. You can also get information about future shows on our Patreon. If you'd like to donate to the show, anything and everything, even a dollar a month, helps and is deeply appreciated. You can become a patron at patreon.com slash mooks. Until next time.